If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 12 today. We have two chapters left. Today we're going to look um, at the Christian life, and I, I love Hebrews 12. This is one of my, my favorite passages, and so as we begin and as we think about what is the Christian life today, I want you to think just for a moment, how would you describe the Christian life? What words or what images come to mind and what would you use if you were to describe the Christian life to someone else? As we've gone through the book of Hebrews, um, we've learned a lot about the Christian life, and and he would help us in answering this question. In chapter 3, he compared the Christian life to to wandering through the wilderness. Um, He said that the Christian life is hard, and that's why we have Jesus Christ as our high priest, and he gives us grace. Um, We've learned that the Christian life is difficult, and thus we need encouragement from other believers. He said that the Christian life requires constant guarding against sin. We saw it in chapter 3, and we'll actually see that later today in the text that we're in. Um, And so those are some of the things that we learned in Hebrews. And if we stepped out of the book of Hebrews and we looked at kind of the rest of the New Testament, maybe if we looked at some of the writings of the Apostle Paul, he would also help us understand words and images that we could use to describe the Christian life. Paul said that Christian life is like a farmer. It's like a soldier at war. It's like a boxer. It's like a race. And so if if we put all those kind of pictures that we have in Hebrews and that Paul gives us, and we could even look at others that Christ gives us um, in the Gospels, we could see that the Christian life takes effort, that it takes work, that it requires diligence. It's not like jumping on I-5, putting your car on cruise control, and heading down to Southern California. I think it's sometimes what we think it is or we act like it is. Um, But today in our text, the author is going to compare the Christian life to a race, and not just any race, not a sprint, but more to something like a marathon. And so as we jump in, I just want to highlight what I think there is a problem with some of discipleship that takes place today. We often don't prepare people to run with endurance. We don't often prepare people to run with endurance. And and what I mean by that, and and you can think about this, either this was told to you or maybe you've said something like this to other people. You're telling them about the Christian life, and so you go, man, you should believe in Jesus. Jesus will take away all your pains, all your sorrows. You will have great joy. It's going to be amazing when you come to Christ. And then we leave it right there, in which that's true. It's just not a complete picture of what the Christian life looks like. And so oftentimes when someone comes to faith or, or they believe that they've come to faith, they begin the race strong. It's like they, they come out of the block strong and they're running well, but then trials come and troubles come. And oftentimes uh, when they begin to stumble and when they begin to fall and as their knees get bloody and as their lungs get tired uh, of breathing, and then they start going, wait, this This isn't exactly what I was told. And they begin to wonder, is this what the Christian life is supposed to be? This is hard. This is difficult. 
Nobody warned me about this. And as they stumble and fall more times and they experience more and more trials, they might become discouraged. They might become tired. They might become weary. And they begin to slow their pace down. I don't know if you've ever run and you've gotten a cramp and, and you've tried to run through the cramp. And then sometimes you're just like, oh, I just can't run through the cramp. And so what do you do? You begin to slow down and soon you're not running. And for some, they stop running altogether. And they're not even walking and they call someone and they just come and get picked up, right? For many, they abandon the race altogether. And, and that's what we're looking at today. And I just want you to think, do you know people like that? Do you know people that have gone through trials and pains, and because of that, they've actually walked away from the church, they've walked away from the faith? And maybe, maybe that's you. Maybe you've had a season where, because of certain things that have come in your life, you've actually walked away from the church. Maybe you walked away from God for a while, and then by his grace, you've come back. Or maybe you're in here today, and you do just feel tired, and you feel weary, and you've been wondering, is this what the rest of my life is going to be like if I'm a Christian? So it's the very temptation that the church in Hebrews is facing. They, they came out of the block strong. We read that in chapter 10, where persecution and trials were coming, and yet they endured them. They counted them with joy. But now the race has continued to go, and it stayed difficult and it's hard and their knees are bloody their lungs are screaming and they're going are we going to continue the race and they're debating if they should abandon it altogether and so today we're going to look at a text on what it means to be a christian and he's going to call us to run with endurance. And so I love that this text takes place in the beginning of the year. In fact, this was supposed to be what was preached yes last week. Uh, but that didn't happen because of covid. Uh, and just uh, being under the weather. And so we're, we're using, uh, so we're starting, uh, re- we're in the text now, and it's still at the beginning of the year. And I just want you to think, as we begin this year, how are you running? Because my desire and, and our desire ought to be that when we come to the end of 2022, we're, conti- we're still running. And in fact, we're running even more effectively. We're running stronger and harder after Christ. And so as we walk through this text, just some questions to be thinking about. Number one, are you running? Just think about that. Are you running? Maybe, maybe answer this too. How are you running? If you were to describe your Christian life or if someone else was to describe your run right now, your pace, what would they say? And then lastly, what, what could you do that would help you run more effectively? I just want you to think about those things as we go through here. My, my hope is that the last few verses of Psalm 139, I, I want those to be our prayer today as we're kind of coming into this text. Uh, the last few verses say this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And if we can reinterpret that through the the words of Hebrews, he'd be saying, search me, O God, help me to run my race. And if there's anything in the way of running my race well, reveal that to me so I would run hard after you. So just let that be our prayer as we come into this text. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We stand at the reading of God's word. We do so as simply a means of reminding us that this word 
that we've been given us, that we've been given by God, is inspired by the Holy Spirit, is given for the purpose of correcting, teaching, and training us for righteousness. So three verses. Here we go. Verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Let's pray. Our Father, Father, we come to you now and we come humbly before you, acknowledging that we need grace. Lord, the Christian life is a a race. It is a marathon and is full of trials, of pains, of difficulties. And Lord, the only way we run this race is by your grace. And the only way we overcome weariness and tiredness and discouragement is by your grace. And so, Father, I pray That as we look at your word today, that your spirit would pour forth your grace into our hearts, into our lives, into our very souls so that we'd be strengthened this morning. And I pray for every believer here, wherever they're at in their Christian life, that they'd be strengthened this morning because of your word. That if there's any sin that they're harboring, that if there's any weight that they need to remove, that you would reveal that through the person of your spirit that, Lord, we would run effectively after you. We'd run passionately after you, that we would keep our eyes fixated on you because you are our treasure. And, Lord, if there's anything that we're treasuring more than you, Lord, reveal that today, that we'd be able to repent, confess it to you. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to just jump in. Number one, the Bible is full of saints who run with endurance. Um, We start off verse one. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And so let me just recap why we have this and what's happening. At the end of chapter 10, the author said to the church, your need is for endurance. Do you remember that? We're at the end, chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. What you need, church, is to endure. And so then he goes in to the to, the, um, to chapter 11, and he's going to encourage the church to run with endurance by giving them Old Testament examples. He gives 16 specific Old Testament saints who have run the race with endurance. Now, many people, when they, when they read the word, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, we think that... Um, we're to think of a stadium filled with Old Testament saints and they're cheering us on. Have you heard something like that before? That's not right. Like that doesn't even fit the context of what is happening here. So just because just that sounds cute, don't get drawn into that. Um, the author's purpose of mentioning the saints was not um, so that the the church would look back and see a bunch of cheerleaders in the stands rooting them on, but it was so that they'd be encouraged by examples of those who have already run the race. Think about it. These saints are in heaven. 
They're in the very presence of God. They're full of joy as they worship their creator, their king, their savior, the very treasure in whom they have loved more than life itself. They're basking in the infinite joy and beauty of God himself. Their focus is not on the things of earth. Their focus is on God. And so as we look to the Old Testament, they serve as examples for us, not as cheerleaders. And so just a couple things with that. And I think these are slightly out of order because I changed them up a little bit. Um, But biblical saints serve examples on how we to run with endurance. Which means when we read through the Old Testament and you read about the life of Abraham and the life of David and the life of Ruth and, and the life of Paul in the New Testament, you're looking at those who have run the race of faith, who have ran with endurance. When you're in the book of Numbers and you're reading about the Israelites go through the wilderness and they're rebelling against God and they're grumbling, what we're learning is how to run with endurance. Whether we have good examples or poor examples, or good examples or poor examples, they're there to teach us what does it look like to run the Christian life. And if we think about this, if the saints in the Old Testament and the New Testament serve as examples to encourage us to run the race, is not that, is not that the same also today for Christians? You realize that? You are to be an example to others on how to run with endurance also. And I don't know that we always remember that, but while you have your own race, you're running not just so you finish, but so that others may finish as well. So the way that you endure trials and temptations and pain and tragedy and even joy and blessings, those are all the means in which you are helping others to run the race of endurance. So we can look to the Old Testament. We can look at one another as examples. And if we're to understand that we're to run with endurance, then I I just want to make sure we know what the words run with endurance actually mean. To run with endurance is to live by faith. That's what he's talking about here. At the end of chapter 10, the author said, you have need for endurance. Then right after that, he says, he quotes Habakkuk and he says, the righteous shall live by faith. And then he begins to describe faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, where he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then when we get into Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, he says, without faith, is it, it is impossible to please God. So the whole looking, or the whole picture of chapter 11, as we're looking at all these Old Testament saints, it's those who have ran their race or those who have lived by faith. And when we were back in chapter 11, we said to live by faith is to trust in the promises of God. And so the reason that he compares the Christian life to a marathon is because the Christian life is long, it's hard, and at every single moment, if we're going to finish, we must trust in the promises of God. And so that's, that's when, when you hear the words run with endurance, think live by faith. When you hear the words live by faith, think run with endurance. Another thing to know before we kind of jump in is every Christian has their own race. And in fact, we see that verse one, let us run 
with endurance the race that is set before us. He's actually talking about the course for each Christian. Each Christian has their own race. We all live by faith. And our races are a little bit different. Noah's, ra- Noah's race was different than Abraham's. Abraham's was a little different than Sarah's. Sarah's was different than Moses. Moses was different than Gideon. As we look through the Old Testament, all the races are a little bit different, but we all run by the same rules. And so when we look at one another's life, our course, our race is going to look a little different. Sometimes you're going to see people and it looks like their race is harder than yours. Sometimes your race is going to look like it's harder than theirs. The point is not that we compare with other people's races, but that we all know we've been given a race and we run, though, by the same set of rules. We run by faith. And so that's what we're going to look at today is four rules that the author gives us on how to run with endurance. Because every Olympic athlete or every athlete, when they enter into a race, they're given guidelines, they're given rules. And if they don't run according to those rules, what happens? They're disqualified. And so the God who has saved us, the God who has given us faith, the God who preserves us in the faith, also is the very God who tells us how to live out that faith. And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at what does it mean to live the Christian life, to live by faith, to run with endurance. And so uh, these are four rules on, what it, on how to run with endurance. Number one, examine your life for sin. Verse one, he says, we're to lay aside every weight and sin. The author is telling us we need to examine our life regularly for sin. Repentance is to be a regular act of faith that we do. And if you remember back in chapter 3, that's a long time ago now, actually, isn't it, when we were in he- back in chapter 3 of Hebrews? But the author, he recalled the Israelites. They're wandering through the, wil- um, the, through the wilderness. God just saved them out of Egypt. He just brought them through the Red Sea. And then what do they do right afterwards? They grumble. They complain. I mean, God just displayed these 10 amazing plagues, brought them through the Red Sea. And then they're like, eh, I don't know if he's strong enough to actually provide for us. And then he brings them to the brink of uh, the promised land, and he tells them to go enter into the promised land, enter into the joy and all the blessings that I have given you. And they say, uh, I don't know, they're kind of big. Maybe we won't go in. And so again, they continue to rebel against the promises of God. They refuse to believe in them. So this is why then in Hebrews chapter 3, the author says this, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. If you think about this in terms of like race language, he's saying, pay attention to your life. Is there anything that's hindering you from sinning or from running the race? Is there anything that's in the way? And if there is, then we're to remove it. Paul says the same thing throughout many of his letters. Like in Colossians 3, he says, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil, idolatry, covetousness. And then he says, take off anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Regularly, Paul, whether it's in Colossians or, um, or Galatians, he's telling us, take these things off. And then he says, Put these things on. So take the things off like sin and then become more and more like Christ. Just as an athlete watches what they eat, 
So Christians are to examine their lives for sin on a regular basis. And so I just want to ask you, is there any sin in your life that's hindering you from running well? And a lot of times I just don't think we take the time to think through that. But every time we're in um, our word, in God's word, on, like uh, in the mornings when we're in our own personal quiet time, one of the things we ought to do at the end of that time is, is simply reflect, based upon God's word, is there anything in my life that does not align with God's word? It's just a question we can ask every time. When we're, in, when we're here in a sermon and we're hearing God's word preach, is there anything in my life that doesn't align with God's will? And so um, in the book, Getting Back in the Race by Joel Beakey, he mentioned six ruts that we can fall into that will reveal if there's sin in our life. So I just want to read through these, and I'm just going to kind of, wherever they hit you, we're not going to spend a lot of time on them, um, but I'll just let whatever the Spirit does in you as we walk through them. Uh, number one, coldness in prayer. Do you find that prayer is not something you're being drawn into? Do you find that prayer is something you're, you're forgetting about? Maybe you're neglecting. Indifference to the word. If you're in the word, great, but if you're not in the word, that's okay too. In fact, if you look back over the last couple of days or maybe a week or two weeks, you go, huh, I actually haven't been in the word much at all. Growing inner corruptions. What he means by that is just sin that's building up in your life. Maybe sexual, sexual morality, lust, anger, frustration, anxiety. Are there things that are just beginning to grow in your heart and consuming your mind? Love for the world, lust for possessions, status, money, and the list could go on and on. Are there things that you're fixated on more than the gospel? Declining love for believers. And, and I think maybe, maybe one way to just begin thinking about this, because maybe don't just think, am I actually angry with other people, but am I okay if I don't come, with, come to church? Am I okay if I only gather with the church once a week and I don't see anybody else the rest of the week? Am I okay with very limited Christian fellowship? If I'm with the church, great, but if I'm not, really doesn't matter. Are you, are you growing cold to your love for the church? And then lastly, man-centered hopes. I think a good way to think of this is just your treasure in the world or is it in Christ? And so I just, if those things are present, if you're beginning to see, yep, that's maybe a little bit present in me, then what I would just encourage you to do is just lay that before God and ask him, where, where is there sin in my life? Why is it that I'm feeling cold to your word? Why is it that I'm not wanting to pray? Why is it that I'm okay with not neglect or without gathering with the church? What is in my heart? And just begin to pray and ask the Spirit to press in on that. And then I encourage you to talk with other believers as well. Don't neglect the grace that God gives through other believers in your life. So that's number one. Number two, get rid of excess weight. And I thought about like titling this message, like how to lose weight. I'm always like, eh, it's probably not the best way. But I'm like, it's the beginning of the year. Anyways, um, I don't know. Probably wasn't a wise move. So we didn't do that. Uh, but the word weight, it refers to something bulky. It refers to a weighty mass. So what's he referring to? He's not necessarily referring to sin. We're not talking only about lying or, or lust or anger. The weight that he's talking about could 
be good things. When you watch the Olympic, uh, I like track and field. I just think, I think that's a cool part about the, the Olympics. But when you watch like the sprinters, unless if it's a baton in their hand, have you noticed they don't hold anything? They don't run with a blender? Like, have you noticed, that'd be weird. Have a blender. They don't run with a jacket. Maybe I'll be cold later. You know, they, they don't run with anything in their hands. They don't even wear loose clothing. They just wear spandex. And they just, everything that they have is so they run as quickly and efficiently as possible. And so as Christians, he's wanting us to know we're to take off whatever weight, whatever's encumbering our lives, whatever hindrances we might have. And so uh, there's a lot of really good things that we can do, but they become bad things when they get in the way of God himself. And so I just want to read through a few things. These are things that I thought of. I'm sure that we could spend time and come up with like a hundred more. So kind of like with the other list, I'm just going to read them and just whatever the Spirit does, he does with you. Um, But I just want you to think about these things. And I'll tell you this, if you feel at all a sense of recoiling, that's probably something in you, okay? Just so we're all all clear there. Um, Fishing, hunting, sewing, crafts, TV, YouTube, Facebook, Pinterest, shopping, cooking, cooking. All the wives are like, oh, I'm not going to cook anymore. (laughs) It's sinful, he told me. Work, sleeping, working out, reading, running, woodworking, animals, kids, sports, drinking beer, eating, hanging out with friends. Now, none of those things are necessarily sinful in and of themselves, but I know plenty of people who during certain, um, during hunting season stop coming to church for weeks at a time. I know many people who prioritize workouts and reading um, other books, but have no time for God's word. I know many people who spend hours on a phone and social media and yet fail to pray and intentionally encourage other saints. So again, we can have these really good things, but what happens If we're not careful, we become fixated on them. They consume our time, and we become tired. So we don't actually have any energy left on how we focus and we run the race of endurance. Satan wants more than anything to distract us from running the race of faith. And he often does that with good things. And slowly those good things become the treasures that we seek after more than the true treasure, Jesus Christ. And so I simply just, is there any extra weight you need to take off? Is there any things that you're doing? And maybe it's not that you abandon it altogether, but you need to start putting some some guidelines around it. Start start putting some, some boundaries that it doesn't consume all of your time. So those are two negative things that we're supposed to do. Removing sin, removing weights. And now there's two positive actions that he gives us. Number three, look to Jesus. Verse two, we could spend a long time on verse two alone. Notice what the author says about Jesus. He says we're to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter 
of our faith. He means that Jesus is the beginning and end of our faith. The point is Jesus is, our, is the object of our faith. He's the goal of the Christian faith. He's the one who has saved us. Jesus is the one who keeps us saved. And Jesus is the one we are being made like. Jesus is the one we will spend all of eternity with in glory. And the word look means to fixate. He's telling you and I we're to be completely and absolutely absorbed with Jesus Christ. All of our attention is focused on Christ. Just as an athlete runs towards the finish line, and if you look at those sprinters, they start with their eyes down, then they raise up, and they're told, they're, they're trained, only look towards the finish line. They're not to look at those around them or anywhere else because that distracts them. Only look towards the finish line. And as the Christian. We look towards Christ in anything and everything that we do. We're to run with our eyes on Jesus. Why? We give a list of examples here, but just one thing that I want to bring up, because he is our supreme example. If you notice, he's described the Old Testament saints, but then he tells us specifically, but we look to Jesus. The Old Testament saints, they will point us into how to run the life, um, run our race with endurance, Ultimately, though, they point us to Christ. And the one we're to be fixated on, the one our eyes are locked upon, is Christ. And all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author has emphasized the humanity of Jesus. And for multiple of reasons he's done that. But for one, because Jesus is our example. He really did come and run the race. He lived a life here on earth. He endured pains and trials and struggles, and he did so without sin. He did so perfectly, not only so he could be our perfect sacrifice, but also so he could be our perfect example. And there's three things the author wants us to know about Jesus. He says he endured the cross out of future joy. He despised shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So I just want us to think about these for a moment. He says, he endured the cross out of future joy. It says, for the race, or it says, um, who for the joy that was set before him. Back in chapter 10, verse 34, the author reminded the Hebrew Christians that when they first became Christians, they endured hardship and trials because they knew they had a future reward. He's telling, he's been telling them ever since then, keep your eyes on the reward. In chapter 1036, he encouraged the church, keep running so you'll receive your reward, the great reward. Chapter 11, he says, those who live by faith will please God and will receive a reward. The whole book of Uh, whole chapter of 11 is about those who have ran the race and ultimately then receive Christ as their great reward. Throughout the New Testament, we see Paul and others calling us to run the race for the reward that's set before us. They want us to know there's a future joy. There's a reward that lies in front of us at the end of the race. And this is what we see why Jesus endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross because of the reward that was set before him. He despised the shame of the cross because of future joy. He endured the thorns, the whippings, the spittings, the beatings, the mockings, the nails going through his flesh, the wrath of God, all the shame of the cross because of future joy, because of the great reward that laid ahead. 
And you say, well, what is that reward? Well, we see it's being seated with God at his right hand on his throne. It's sharing in the perfect glory of the Father. We see Jesus endured great shame, pain, trials, and sufferings because the reward of the Father's glory. The glory of God is so great, it turns our greatest, most severe times of affliction into what Paul called, remember a couple weeks ago, into light, momentary afflictions. Remember the Apostle Paul? Remember in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, he walks through like all of his sufferings, and he's like, five times he received 39 lashes, three times he was beaten with rods, once he was stoned, three times he was shipwrecked. His life was constantly under threat by those who wanted to torture and murder him. He regularly endured hunger, miserable sleep, or <laughs> miserable sleep, endured hunger, sleepless nights, and being cold, and just uh, pain and suffering. Why did he endure these things? For the joy that laid ahead. For the great reward. He endured them because of what God has promised at the end of the Christian life, which we read, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He says, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So what we see is the reward for Christ was that he'd be exalted to the right hand of God and seated on his throne. And then we're told in Revelation chapter 3, 21, we get the exact same reward. Do you get that? Like, when we're we're saved, the Bible says we're adopted into God's family so that we become brothers of Christ. And there's no second-rate family members in the family of Christ. So as the Father has glorified the Son, so now because of our faith in Jesus, we also will share in that glory. And we will sit with the Son on the throne with the Father for all of eternity. That's the joy that's laid before us. We get to enjoy the joy and peace and beauty and strength and glory of God for all of eternity. That's what's at the end of the race. It's because of that future joy that we see all throughout the book, uh, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, here in Hebrews, that we can endure hardship, that we can run our race. And I know that if we were to to look at just the, the hardships that are endured with this church, we could come up with many. But what we would see is that it's because of this joy that we can endure difficult marriages. It's because of this joy that we're promised we can endure through disease, we can endure through cancer, we can endure through Parkinson's, we can endure through MS, we can endure through COVID, we can endure through financial difficulty, we can endure the death of a loved one, we can endure the rejection of society and or family members, we can endure physical persecution. In fact, I got a, um, I received a YouTube video from one of the missionaries that we have over in India today. It's a 12-minute long video, uh, and the entire time, uh, the song, oh, why, why I Believe in Jesus, um, what's the song? I'm blanking on it at the moment. I heard it play for 12 minutes today. Um, and throughout, while this song is being, oh, How I Follow Jesus, what was that? Come on. I'm close enough, aren't I? Follow Jesus. Something follow Jesus. What is it? Yes, that's, thank you. 
Wife, where were you? <laughs> One job. I have decided, so for 12 minutes, they're singing that in all these different languages, and then in the midst of that, for 12 minutes, it highlights persecution and persecution after persecution after persecution, and all these aspects of India over the last four years, from 2016 to 2020, going from Christians who have not only been hurt and stabbed and beaten, but to those who have been beheaded and burned and killed, and it just goes through the whole time. Why I've decided to follow Jesus and Continually, so I'm I'm looking at this text and been get, you know I received this uh, YouTube video this morning and the whole thing is because of the great reward. The only thing that makes sense why Christians are giving their lives in some of those dramatic ways that they'd be martyred in horribly painful ways is because there is a far greater joy that lies ahead, a joy that this earth cannot compare to. And so that is what the author is wanting us to know. It's because of this joy that that's why we remove sin and those, those weights that we talked about, those things that we love to do, but we say, wait a minute, I might like hunting and fishing and sewing and crafts and Pinterest and all that other stuff, but Jesus is far greater than all of those things. So I will fixate my eyes on him. And the reason I will give up on some of these other things and I will remove sin is not because God is a killjoy removing things from us because he wants to maximize our joy that we would treasure him and experience his glory for all of eternity. When we run with endurance, we testify to this world that Jesus, our King, our Savior, is far more beautiful, far greater, more satisfying, and more glorious than anything this world can offer. Do you realize that? So whatever pain, whatever trial you're in, Satan's wanting to use that to hijack your faith, to get you from running because he wants you to prioritize something other than Jesus, and yet God is using that trial in your life at this moment to show you the gloriousness of Jesus, and not only you, but also the world that's watching and other believers. We run for joy. We run for the great reward of being made like Jesus and living with him for all of eternity. It's because of this joy that Paul said to live is Christ, and then what? To die is it's only gain if there's a far greater treasure in heaven. It's only gain. Other than that, the Bible doesn't make any sense. But if there truly is a greater joy, and that treasure is being in the presence of God, made like God for all of eternity, sharing in his glory, that is the reward that we have. Now you might be thinking, okay, so that's what we do. We fixate our eyes on Jesus. We look to Jesus. He's the example. But how do I do that? Because the longer we're in a trial, the harder it is to keep looking to Jesus. The longer we're in a trial, the more tired we get, the more weary we become, the more we're tempted to give up. It's like that time when that cramp comes in your side. You want to stop. But every runner knows you must endure and press through, and eventually the cramp will go away. So how do we press on? It takes us to fourth rule, meditate on the truths of Jesus. Look at verse 3. In verse 3, the author says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So the, the word consider means to think deeply, 
He wants us to meditate on the truths of who Jesus is. Why? Because the church is tired. He told them in chapter 10, you need endurance. He's given them Old Testament examples of endurance, ultimately points them to Jesus. And he says, if you will look to Jesus and meditate on who Jesus is, you will not be weary or tired. He doesn't say, trust in yourself. He doesn't say, try harder. He doesn't say, well, some of you are just more gifted than others. The solution to tiredness, to being weary, is not by turning to ourselves, but by turning to the gospel, turning to Christ, and meditating on who Jesus is. And there's, I wanted to come up, like we could do a whole other sermon, just like verse 3, but let me just give two things that we meditate on. And I I chose these two things because these are what... um, the book of Hebrews emphasizes over and over and over again. Number one, Jesus is our great sacrifice. He died on the cross for our sins. He paid all that we needed to but couldn't. Because of his death, and as Adiel wrote it, uh, read it perfectly today from chapter 8, and it's repeated again in chapter 10, that we've been washed clean, and God promises he will not remember our sins or our lawless deeds anymore. Do you know that? We run with endurance, not to be clean, but because we have been cleansed. We run with endurance, not to get the Spirit, but because we've been given the Spirit, and He's the one who works in us and strengthens us to run the race. So we must remember Jesus is our great sacrifice. Number two, Jesus is our great high priest. Several times in the book of Hebrews, the author specifically mentioned, like in chapter 2, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 16, Jesus is our high priest, and because of that, we can come boldly to him, and he will give us grace. Chapter 2, verse 18 says it this way, because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The reason we meditate on the truths of Jesus is because it's as we understand who he is, that he's our great high priest who paid the great sacrifice for us, that we know that he will give us grace every single step of the way. So whatever you're going through, God has given you this course. Your course is not an accident. Whatever your race is right now, whatever your trial is, whatever your 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 running up against, but he's given that to you so that you would run with endurance by receiving the grace of Jesus for every single step. There's nothing that comes into your life that his grace is not able to strengthen you so that you can walk faithfully in. Do you know that? A lot of times we think God gives us grace to escape the trials, but that's not what, what 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 11 says. He gives us grace to endure. That's the way out of trials. It's through the trial, not removed out of it. He gives us grace to run. There's no teleporting in the Christian life. I think we think that at times. And so, how do you meditate on the truths of Jesus? We read our Bibles, we gather with the church. 
We do table groups. We memorize scripture. We seek to obey God's word. We remove sin. We remove weights. We look to Jesus. And all of that is out of joy. All of that is for joy. And what do you think? When you open up your word in the morning, or when you come and you listen to a sermon like this, or, or when you gather with a group of believers like in table group and you're encouraging one another, that's beginning to taste the very joy that God has for us at the end of the race. Do you know that? Like, have you, you've come home at times and your spouse has been cooking, and we'll just pretend it's really good, okay? We'll say it's really good. Whatever it is, don't remember the bad time that something got burnt, but you walk in and, and it's this amazing, you know, meal, whatever it is, and that smell permeates the entire house, right? So as soon as you open the door, it's like you're beginning to taste it, yet you haven't physically tasted it. That's what happens when we open God's word. When we come in before a sermon like this, when we memorize scripture, when we gather with the saints, we're beginning to taste the realness of that reward, even though we haven't actually yet held it yet at the end of the race. This is what John Owen said. A constant view of the glory of Christ will revive your souls and cause our spiritual lives to flourish and thrive. The more we behold the glory of Christ by faith now, the more spiritual, more heavenly will be the state of our souls. The reason why the spiritual life in our souls decays and withers is because we fill our minds full of other things. But when the mind is filled with the thoughts of Christ and his glory, these things will be expelled. This is how our spiritual life is revived. When you come to God's word each morning, when you spend time in prayer, when you gather with the saints like this, when we do table groups, when we do all the things that we see just in God's word, there are means in which God is giving grace into our life and our souls are being revived and we're being reminded that our great treasure is not on earth, but it's in heaven. And that treasure is far greater than anything else this world offers and it's the only thing that makes whatever trial we're going it through light and momentary. Um, let's pray. And we'll have the team come up. Our Father, our Father, we come to you now. And Lord, this, this text is incredible. You've you told us how to run the race. And you've told us there is a joy. And that joy is nothing else but you, that we would live in your presence, basking in your glory, in your beauty, and your might, and your joy for all of eternity. And I pray that while there are a million things in this world, and there's so many good things, that, Lord, we would not be distracted by them. And if there's anything in our life right now, any weight, any sin, anything that is hindering us, I pray that you would bring that to our mind, to our heart, that we could confess that today so that we will run with endurance because we're not giving things up in a negative way, but we're, we're pursuing your joy. And there's nothing that compares with you. And so, Lord, I pray that we, we look to you. 
We fixate our eyes on you, and we meditate on the fact that you have come to die on the cross, that you'd be our great high priest and give us grace every single day. Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.